to the latest episode of What China Wants with me, Sam Olson, and Stuart Patterson. And today, we're going to be asking a question which is a follow-up to one of our earlier podcasts, asking whether China's economy is shrinking, which I think Stuart gave a resounding answer to yes. And we're going to be joined by the eminent economist, George Magnus. George is an independent economist and an associate at the China Centre, Oxford University. He's also an advisor to some asset management companies. But you might know him more from the commentary he puts regularly out with the Financial Times and the BBC and so on. George is also the author of the fantastic book, Red Flags, Why She's China is in Jeopardy. We're delighted to have George here. So thank you very much for joining us, George, and welcome. Even though that was written a few years ago, I suppose we'd be interested to know whether the central thesis that Xi Jinping's China is running into economic problems still holds true, or even perhaps even more so in light of the recent issues around COVID and the increasing geopolitical tension. Stuart. Well, George, thanks very much indeed for joining us and welcome. What, what I loved about the book, George, is that I think it challenges a fundamental premise of many people's uh, perception of China. In fact, probably many of our policymakers' perceptions of China. Uh, and that is that China's further economic rise is a kind of inevitability. And your book argues that this assumption is somewhat questionable. And I would suggest perhaps that recent evidence is rather supportive of your thesis. So for the benefit of our listeners, perhaps you could just recap some of the the main arguments as to why China's economy under Xi is perhaps more vulnerable than many people think. Sure. And thank you, Stuart and Sam, for having me on your podcast. I think after an eternity, it seemed like, working for UBS with a particular eye on Asian and other emerging markets during the 1990s and the 2000s and then experienced our own financial crisis in 2008-2009 i think what struck me about china really was the sort of spreadsheety view you know which is gosh look what's happened over the last 20 or 30 years and if we just kind of project on a spreadsheet so to speak uh, china's dynamism and growth going forward the next 10 20 30 years this is what's going to happen and it struck me that for various reasons, having kind of sort of looked at the entrails of Chinese political economy for, for some time and traveled there a lot, that China, round about the time that Xi Jinping came to power, had reached something that I called in the book the end of extrapolation. In other words, throw your spreadsheets away, really, because it's a different ball ballgame. Uh, the economy is now you know, replete with imbalances, which actually the outgoing Premier Wen Jiabao had already spoken about on two occasions in 2007 and 2011. A new leadership had taken over who was enamoured with a much more kind of Leninist approach to political thinking and to policy. And I was kind of bothered, really, that the pragmatism and openness, which really ran through the veins of China's policymakers and its economy since Deng Xiaoping, really, were in danger of reversing, really, or being corrected. And that, in fact, was really what I thought was beginning to take place, that it was going to become a more ideological place, that the state and the party were going to be given more emphasis, and that the sort of politicization of business in China was going to become eventually a bit more of a problem. We can get into some of these things, but 
the red flags themselves were really about issues where I didn't think that China's policymakers really had oven-ready solutions and maybe had political difficulties and issues in actually reaching solutions. So one of those was the consequences of excessive growth in debt, which really began with the measures that were taken at the time of the financial crisis in 2008-2009. One had to do with its uh, currency management policies. The third had to do with rapid aging. China's the fastest aging country on the planet, not the oldest, but fastest aging. Fourth had to do with whether China would actually get difficulties or find difficulties getting out of the middle income trap or staying out of the middle income trap because of difficulties and a stall in its underlying uh, growth of productivity. And on top of that, China looked like then, when I wrote the book, really, it was facing the harshest economic external environment that it had done since the era of Mao Zedong. So that really brings us kind of up to date. Those were the red flags. And that's why I thought China was more vulnerable than the kind of the cheerleaders with the spreadsheets were, were having us believe. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the fact that you, you wrote the book in 2018 and, and time marches on and a lot of water has passed under the bridge since 2018. But there's probably a lot more evidence now that's corroborative of your thesis than there is that contradicts it. What would you point to that might cast doubt on it that has happened since publication? And what would you point to most compellingly that is supportive? Well, if I'm honest, then <laughs> I'm going to find it easier to answer the question about what supports the thesis rather than what contradicts it. I suppose I do look over my shoulder quite a lot to see, figuratively speaking, you know, just to listen to and see what other people are saying and just to check that I'm not drowning in my own kind of rhetoric, so to speak. And so, you know, there have been moments since 2018, for example, China's management of the pandemic, certainly in 2020, where it's like somebody giving you kind of a kick in the ribs, right? I mean, you kind of question your premises, you question your assumptions, you question the way that you think about things. You wonder whether, in fact, uh, you know, China's actually got something that other countries don't have in terms of being able to manage through crises. You look, for example, one of the consequences of, let's say, the pandemic and, you know, I mean, the two, the two major crises that I wasn't able to predict with any uh, accuracy, of course, were the pandemic and the Russian invasion of Ukraine, with China has obviously given its support to. But these have kind of accelerated China's desire to prioritize and to, to champion uh, self-reliance, right? They, they've identified a dozen different technologies, advanced technologies, where they want to be number one in the world, where they want their own producers, their national champions, to have 70% market share or more. And at a time when we are all kind of scratching our heads about what kind of political economy do we actually think works in the kind of economic and political environment that we've been left to deal with in the 2020s, and where the state does play a bigger role, you kind of wonder whether maybe China is actually more ideally suited to that kind of situation. So the role of the government, the role of the state in the economy is something which I I do think about a lot and, and try to keep checking whether I'm 
you know, going off piste or whether I'm still on track. But against all of that, I would say that there's nothing in the sort of observable metrics that has really distracted or detracted me from my course. So, I mean, the, the demographics are playing out as one would have expected. The productivity is as poor as it has been. The issues that I raised about the renminbi, I mean, certainly as far as becoming a global currency concerned, I mean, I don't really see any major breakthroughs there. The debt problems are becoming more acute, as we know from the last couple of years, particularly with property companies and property developers. So I think all of that is kind of playing out pretty much as I thought it might. The government's attitude towards private firms and the recalibration of industrial policy in favour of state enterprises and the role of the party in uh, the economy are definitely things that I was worried about. And there have been many, many more data points that uh, corroborate that view. Plus, of course, the consequences of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine in terms of self-reliance and China cutting itself off from the world. I think this kind of disengagement phenomenon, which is partly made in China and partly being manufactured, of course, in Washington, Brussels, London, and so on, this is something new, right? I mean, China prospered. The rising China was based on its engagement with the rest of the world. Disengagement will have consequences. Yeah, I mean, that's a really interesting point, George, because this self-reliance, which sort of seems to be a major plank of dual circulation policy, both sides in this, if you want to draw this dichotomy between the West and China, and we can loosely define the West, you know, it can be defined however you want, but both sides seem to be very alert, increasingly alert to their trade dependencies and, and their level of reliance on each other. And China seems to have a much more coherent plan or seems to be expediting a better plan or taking greater action than the liberal democracies do in terms of trying to immunize themselves from the fallout from sort of economic statecraft, the potential to use economic statecraft to try and inflict harm one another. In a way, it seems odd, doesn't it, given how much China has benefited from the global trading order and investment order as it stands at the moment to be walking away from it. How do you explain that? Is it fear of Western sanctions or is it? does it represent a sort of ideological shift towards sort of self-resilience and part of national aggrandizement? It's sort of a real mercantilist turn that you simply shouldn't be dependent on foreigners for technology or, or frankly anything else. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think that there is no question that really the sanctions regime implemented against Russia and which the Chinese are quite anxious about, right? I mean, as far as we know, of course, there may be a lot of things going on that we don't know, uh, or that I don't know, and certainly things going on uh, under the radar screen. But Major Chinese companies, for example, have not really wanted to put themselves at risk of incurring secondary sanctions by engaging in big kind of commercial transactions with Russian companies. Chinese banks have really stepped away, as far as we can tell, from financing big energy deals with Russian companies. So, as I said, no question that China has been, I think, kind of thrown a curveball, as it were, by the implementation of sanctions coordinated by the West, I mean, the politically defined West rather than geographically defined. 
And there's a sort of no way Jose kind of theme that kind of runs through China's policies here, which is, you know, we're not going to get caught out by this. Now, it's a moot point as to whether China can insulate itself successfully in every sector, uh, in electronics, in semiconductors, in finance, for example. I mean, I don't have any qualms really about some areas of technology and of course electric vehicles although you know most of the kind of producers are foreign but in battery manufacturing in artificial intelligence in surveillance equipment in quantum computing in lots of different areas solar panels and you know green energy i mean china is in a very kind of good position but there are a lot of areas where it's not in such a good position and it still has very very high dependency on the dollar system on advanced semiconductors and other uh, sophisticated forms of technology so why are they doing this or why are they kind of exposing themselves to being cut off or having sort of frostier relations with suppliers I mean, you can understand why Americans want to de-signify their supply chains. But of course, the Chinese want to de-Americanize theirs too, or de-Westernize theirs to some degree. And I think that it's just the question of politics is just trumping economics, as it often does, particularly at times of stress. And we shouldn't forget, of course, that historically, China has had these kind of sort of waves that go over centuries rather than, you know, years, but these waves in which it's opened up to the world and then closed up, opened up to the world and then closed up. The perverse thing about this is that, as we know from China in the 1980s, 90s and 2000s, it was very willing to learn and engage with the rest of the world. And there were massive increases in you know, cultural exchanges, student exchanges, scientists exchanges, and so on and so forth, amongst other things, and you know, the growth of, of educational exchanges and so on. And now this has all got a slightly kind of frostier feel about it, as China kind of feels like they don't need the West anymore. We can do things our, on our own. You know, we don't really need you. Well, that's what they kind of want to tell themselves. In some areas, it might be true. In some other areas, it might not be true. Just on that, I mean, Deng Xiaoping was well known for saying that we must learn from the West. And interesting you bring in the history because you can go back into the great revivalist movements in the late 19th century and early 20th century, newly Republican era, where people did actively look to the West for inspiration and for science and culture, etc. And we have had one of those like inverted commas, golden periods now, where I suppose the politics took a back seat. But what was interesting is that there still seem to be people in the West, in fact, I was on a call with some, some very senior individuals earlier today, who insist that in China, anyone calling politics king rather than economics is not understanding the Chinese mentality. In actual fact, it is economics still driving the course of action in China because economics is so important to the welfare of the nation. But what would you say to people who think that economics is still in the driving seat? Do you think that actually it is fair to say that politics really does trump everything now? Or do you think that it is more nuanced than that? Well, I was just thinking about what I would respond to that. I think I would say that from my perspective, I don't think they understand Leninists. And I think that, you know, there is no question about the Leninist hue of Xi Jinping and his thoughts of socialism for a new era, you know, or, or Xi Jinping thought and so on and so forth, embedded now in the constitution, not just of the party, but of the country as well. Um, and um, and which people are being taught at school, and I mean, often from very young ages, et cetera, et cetera. 
So this is um, this is this is a political ideological um, foot forward, right? And they believe that obviously that if they follow the policies of Xi Jinping and Xi Jinping thought that the economy will deliver the reduction in poverty, which they claim already has achieved by their definition, plus the construction of a prosperous nation and in, indeed a, a dominant nation by the middle of the century. I mean, they haven't talked very much this year about common prosperity, which was aired and spoken about a lot in 2021. It made a fleeting reference in one or two of the documents presented at the National People's Congress in March of this year. But I think that's been sort of sidetracked in a way because of the economic crisis at home. I suspect that China will find its way through with, I imagine, Xi Jinping at the helm still into 2023, 2024. And I think that we will hear more about common prosperity policies. But we can be critical about common prosperity and whether it has any substance or whether it's just a campaign but actually, the belief in Beijing is that if you get the politics right, the economics will follow. I don't honestly believe that they think about it the other way around. They want prosperity for people, of course, and they know that their greatness and the projection of power in the world depends on their economic heft. But they just have a different kind of perception about how to create that compared with me. So, George, I mean, I think that's very interesting because one of the themes that we sort of been talking about is the downplaying of economic growth as a source of party legitimacy. And one of the reasons for that, we think, is precisely what you point out in your book, that the economic model is showing many signs have been broken. It needs an overhaul, and it needs an overhaul by economists, not by politicians. And you use in your book the adjective brittle, to describe Xi's regime, which many observers would say is, you know, the antithesis of what has gone before, which was pragmatic and flexible and technocratic excellence was rewarded. Whereas under Xi, it seems more as though being true to the ideology and loyal to the man seems to be more of a, a prerequisite for promotion than technical excellence and the past execution of good policy. So if that's the sort of direction we're going, does this make you worry about the size of the economic fallout that we might see from China? Because if we look at the global economy since 2009, say, the financial crisis, China's accounted for about 40% of the world's growth. And if we're all well aware of the fact that macroeconomic data out of China has become increasingly politicized and is really just a source of national propaganda now in many ways, but how big could the fallout from China be? And what could be the global ramifications of that if she carries on down the brittle road, as it were? Right. So just to contextualize the answer and relate it to the previous answer to Sam's question. And also to anchor it in what I said right at the very beginning when I was talking about, you know, the end of the extrapolation. What I kind of mean by that and what that's a script for, really, is that China's development model needs a makeover, right? Because the old one doesn't really work anymore. And we know that doesn't work because property market is keeling over. You can't keep on investing ever bigger shares of GDP without getting 
capital misallocation and diminishing returns and growing debt problems. So we know things have to change. I haven't been there since 2019. Probably very, very few people have. And so it's, it's very difficult to keep tabs on this. But my impression certainly is that China's leaders, many of them, know that some things have to change. I just don't think they can bring themselves around to doing the kind of changes that I think are necessary. And many of these revolve around the construction of institutions. Institutions play an absolutely critical role in economic development. Whether you're poor, whether you're a middle-income country, and even for Britain and the United States and Western Europe, the robustness and inclusive nature of institutions are really what drive economic progress, I would say, because that's how you basically get more bang for your buck in terms of productivity. So the implications of all of this, if China cannot change or it finds it politically difficult to change, which I think is the case, I think the outlook for China over the next 10, 15 years or so is basically it's a low growth economy, right? It's going to be two and a half, three, three and a half percent per annum on average, question is how much disruption accompanies that sort of growth rate? Is it a lot of disruption or is it minimal disruption? Are the political constructs in China robust enough to be able to manage with minimum disruption? But a slower growing Chinese economy has huge implications for the rest of us, right? So we fret every day now about oil and gas and commodity prices and resource prices and rare earth prices and goodness knows what else. But a China that grows at a much slower rate, once the kind of the shock impact of uh, the Russian invasion is over, China's impact on global commodity prices will be to depress them, basically, if the property market is as sort of languid as, or languishing for the next years as I expect it might. Supply chains are going to exert a very, very significant impact on people's perceptions about inflation. On the one hand, if supply chains are recalibrated and new opportunities and new investment outlets are found in, say, Malaysia or Cambodia or Vietnam, India, and so on. There are new business opportunities and there are new downward pressures on prices as a consequence of that. On the other hand, of course, disruption to supply chains and the possibility of yuan depreciation in the future will have an opposite effect on inflation. So I don't think it's easy to say categorically a low-growing China will be positive or negative for inflation. It kind of depends on the context in which this happens. But yeah, I mean, for 75 countries or however many it is uh, that have China as their biggest trading partner, either on exports or imports or both, then a slower growing market or slower growing GDP, shall we say, will have consequences. And it's obviously not great for global growth, or you have to find different markets that are growing more quickly. So George, just to finish off, though, you've given a very eloquent description of how there are indeed some red flags in the Chinese economy. And, and if I could just summarise, it seems that the end of extrapolation is basically the cause and because the Chinese economic model needs a different direction because it's got to a certain level of development. But the problem is, is that the politics have really interjected to make sure that there's changes in the economy that need to happen to continue with good growth haven't really happened and can't really happen because of the political system they rest upon. So here's a sort of final question for you. If that is the case, then surely there must be some kind of blowback onto the politics from the economics if the economics is kind of stuttering because of the politics, if that makes sense. But is that blowback strong enough, in your opinion, 
to put at risk the regime of Xi Jinping. He's obviously got his party congress this autumn looking for re-election. And do you think that the economics are bad enough yet, or might be soon, to challenge Xi Jinping on his home turf? Wow. Okay. Hostages to fortune. You ready? (laughs) So I think as people probably know, there's certainly been speculation this year about opposition to Xi Jinping, who has not been able to bask necessarily in the kind of environment he would have wanted in this run-up to the big 20th Party Congress, whenever it's going to be held later this year. And the pandemic, and particularly the Omicron experience in Shanghai and Beijing and other places obviously played part of that. And obviously the way that China's support for Russia has also been lots of rhetoric in favour, etc. But it's obviously not really worked out the way they planned. I think that speculation is, that's just all it is. It's speculation. I don't think we have any real basis for believing that there is an orchestrated or planned move to oust him or to elbow him aside. But lots of positions have to be filled on the Politburo, the Standing Committee, and also at various levels in the party hierarchy. And we'll see whether he gets his way with all his nominees or whether there is opposition from the party and these things will become clear to sinologists in the fullness of time. But I think the working assumption is that he will still be nominated to have his third term at the party congress. I would say with the economy, that the significance of the economy, I think, is changing. So rapid economic growth and high levels of employment always used to be, I think, deemed to be the core of the Communist Party's legitimacy to rule and the leader's authority within the party. They're still important, not so much GDP growth itself, but actually jobs are really important. And jobs are certainly at a bit of a premium right now. But that's a kind of a watch this space. But I would add to that, that a rising China is the basis for the way in which Xi Jinping has claimed and staked the legitimacy of the Communist Party in China and his role within it. If a rising China is basically back in the melting pot because it can't grow that quickly or because things don't work out in the way that they have done, let's say, in decades gone by, and the rest of the world starts to look at China in a slightly different light from an economic point of view, these things then can become quite important for the position of the general secretary himself, and obviously for those that would otherwise be his enemies and might might now be kind of frightened to put their heads above the parapet, that might not be so frightened, let's say, in years to come. George Magnus, thank you very much. That was a fantastic tour de force. Not particularly encouraging for those wanting to invest in China, I should think. George, thanks very much indeed for joining us. And thank you for having me. Bye.